Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. One of the most important historical events that happened in this country, and we, many of us, probably have forgotten about it. Well, I won't say we've forgotten about it, but it, our brain has this wonderful capacity to park things and not think about it anymore. And so many people went through the troubles in Northern Ireland. And 30 years of it, actually, from the 1960s right up to 1998, also known internationally as the Northern Ireland conflict. And, of course, that conflict began in the 60s, usually be, has been deemed to be ended but the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. And, of course, for those who don't know, the conflict began during a campaign by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association to end discrimination against Catholic nationalist minority by the Protestant Unionist government and the local authorities. But, of course, we all know the real trouble started long before the troubles themselves, the day that Ireland didn't regain the six counties from Great Britain. Um, but last month, a senior member of the delegation involved in securing the Good Friday Agreement, or the GFA as it's known, because obviously the anniversary came around, has said that we should look forward with enthusiasm and an open mind to the reunification of our country. Speaking at the second annual Mishaera Easter Address at the Mishaera Monument in Ullart uh, on Easter Sunday morning, Dr Ray Bassett said that now, 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, was time for the Irish government to push forward with the plans for a border poll. Because in that Good Friday Agreement, of course, it was agreed when there was a climate for a border poll or a United Ireland vote, essentially, that it should actually happen. And Ray joins me on the line. Good afternoon or good evening to you, Ray. How are you? I'm very good, Neil, and thanks for having me on. You're, you're so welcome. And by the way, you know, as I, I know yourself, you're an, an Irish diplomat, but when we look back at that time of the Good Friday Agreement, and you were there, by the way, you were involved preparing, I suppose, the groundwork for the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement itself. I mean... That must have been a monumental time in your life as well. It was. It was. Uh, I remember at, at the end of it, uh, after the agreement was signed and we were leaving the castle buildings in Belfast, one of our top diplomats uh, rang and he said, by the way, the rest of your career... Oh, we seem to have lost. Oh, oh we seem to have lost you there, right? Are you there, right? Oh, we seem to have lost you. Okay, I do apologise. Hang on. I was talking to some people today. And Hang on, I get, I get you back there in a second, right? I do apologise. I'm just going to reset that again for you, John. Um, I do apologise. We'll get Ray back in a second. But I do want to take your calls as well here today, or tonight. For those who remember, I suppose, the troubles, for those who remember the Good Friday Agreement, for those who were affected by the troubles. And of course, they say that Irish people weren't, or Southern Irish people weren't affected by the Good Friday Agreement. You were all affected by it. Of course, there were many bombs that went off here as well in the south of Ireland at the time. And for many people, they're catastrophic memories. And I always remember when we, you kind of went to America, there was this kind of whole thing in Ireland about, you know, oh, are you are you in the IRA? Because we were associated with the IRA, I suppose. So go ahead there, John. I do apologise. Uh, and I'll get Ray back for you. We were associated with the IRA and we were associated with trouble. And no matter where you went in the world, they thought there was a conflict in the whole of Ireland. Thankfully, it didn't affect everybody in the whole of Ireland, but I suppose in some direct, indirect way it did. But it was mainly the people of Northern Ireland. That's where the lives were lost, and that's where the conflict mainly was. Um, but I'll hopefully get Dr Ray Bassett uh, back now, and we can continue that conversation, because it's an intriguing conversation um, to talk about uh, the Good Friday Agreement. At that time, by the way, both of the people involved in that, President Clinton, of course, was involved. Bertie Ahern was also involved. Martin McGuinness, Jerry Adams, 
Uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair would have been around as well at that time as well. And uh, there was an atmosphere, I imagine, of uncertainty that morning when the agreement was signed uh, in Castle Buildings and Stormont Estate. And uh, for many people, I suppose there was a level of uncertainty as to whether it would actually go through. And sorry, I've got Ray back. I do apologise, Ray. I don't know what happened there. We lost you there for a second, but uh, we have you back now. Sorry, Ray, but getting back to the Good Friday Agreement, was there a level of uncertainty? I mean, you had all these names that we know in history. Of course, Martin McGuinness, Jerry Adams, President Clinton, Bertie Ahern, everybody, uh, George Mitchell, of course, and um, uh, General John de Chastelain, the former Irish or former Finnish Prime Minister. All these people involved. Was there any kind of fear that this just would the outcome wouldn't be good? Well, if I can, and we right up to the last minute, we didn't really believe. Some of us didn't believe it had come through because um, there was an awful lot of tension. You had the Republicans there. You had uh, and you had uh, the Loyalists there. You had David Trimble being very wobbly, uh, and for up right up until the last um, few hours. There was no certainty that it was going to be accepted. Uh, I think the real breakthrough came when when David Trimble decided, uh, despite all the, the problems in his party, he was going with, with the agreement. And I remember that electrified the atmosphere completely and we knew we were, we were, on, we were on the home run at that stage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I suppose the fear for people was that if this didn't work out, and up to that point, of course, we had the ceasefire anyway, up to that point uh, for a few years, but there was a fear that if it didn't work out, it was back to the gun again. And that, that was a genuine fear, wasn't it? It was. And remember, the, the the ceasefires had broken down once already and some people lost their lives as a result of that. You were dealing with organisations, both on the, mainly on the Republican side, but also on the Loyalist side, who had very large amounts of weaponry behind them and with the capacity and, you know, the track record of using them fairly fairly heavily. So, you know, if the thing had had gone off the rails, maybe, you know, the situation would have gotten much worse because, you know, coming up to the ceasefires, there was a, there were spates of some terrible atrocities, but there was in the organisations themselves a desire to kind of scale back. They were be, we were beginning to move into territory where there was a prospect of peace and, you know, there was a lot of feeders and private discussions going on. So I think if the if the kind of pro peace leadership in the law in the parliamentary organisations had failed, I think there were very there were very sinister people behind them who'd be only will willing to take on the struggle and take over those arms and take over those organisations. And I suppose so the ap- was, the atmosphere in Northern Ireland at that particular time too was good because people had been used to looking over their shoulder, and all of a sudden you know they had a ceasefire, primarily a ceasefire anyway. And the last thing they wanted was going back to looking over their shoulder or having, you know, mirrors wheeled under their cars again. That's not what they wanted to go back to. So the people wanted it too, didn't they? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, when the ceasefires were declared, and I was based in Belfast at that stage, um, there was there was a euphoria um, around, uh, you know, some people were, were preaching caution, but the average person on the street sort of let out a, a kind of a... a a, a sigh of relief mm-hmm. and immediately afterwards they started getting a breakdown of, of, of the barriers because uh, people in West Belfast would never go to Bangor or people in you know the Shankill or in, 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 in Tigers Bay 
would never frequent the Wellington Park Hotel. And suddenly it was like, you know, the Berlin Wall came down. People who'd grown up in one side of the city, who knew nothing about the other side, were crossing over to see places that they'd seen on TV, but wouldn't dare walk over. So there was... There was a momentum. And and I, 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 by the way, I see it now. Done. I spend most of my time in Northern Ireland now. Um, yeah. And I see it quite a lot. The, you know, names as a young man that I used to see on the news all the time, you know, places like the Malone Road and uh, the uh, the Falls Road. And all, I see them regularly yeah. all the time now. And these, to me, these are, I only ever heard these names on the news when I was, when I was young. <laughs> and for the wrong reasons, sadly, I heard them on the news. But you yeah. talk about Bangor, which is such a beautiful place, by the way. I, I'm not too far from there. And, you know, I've yeah. gone down to Bangor regularly. I go for a walk along the pier there in Bangor, and it's a beautiful place. I've even been down there when the, the loyalist, um, the drummers were on, the, the, the march, whatever yeah. it is. And and it was a wonderful day. There was Catholics and Protestants there enjoying the day. It's a completely different atmosphere. And with the exception of some pockets and small pockets of areas that still hold a lot of begrudgery and badness in them, I think primarily everybody just wants to move on. But what I was saying earlier on before we come on the air, uh, I I was talking about the fact that in Northern Ireland now, it's not just the British and the Irish. You also have people who declare themselves as being Northern Irish. So it's almost like a separate state. Yes, um... Yeah, that, that that is true. But you know, if you if you take uh, polls and if you take the the, the uh, you know the political parties, generally we've accepted that there were two identities: the Irish and the British. But people who don't want uh, or sort of move in between the two and don't want to be totally associated with one side or the other, do put down um, Northern Irish. And in fact, that is a category in the census. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they usually and vote for the Alliance Party be, or something yeah, like and that. They tend to, and they tend to be very much in the east of, of Northern Ireland. They tend to be North Down, South Antrim, and that. Uh, the, 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 it's a preponderance on that side of Northern Ireland. Um, you don't get it nearly as much over in Derry or Tyrone or uh, places like that. But, you know, it is a, it's a development of people who do not want to be categorised by the sectarian division. I mean, part of okay, part of that Good Friday Agreement, as many was well, many other you know parts of that agreement, were that if there's an atmosphere or a climate for change, i.e., a border poll, that it would happen. Do you think that climate is there now? Do you think that atmosphere is there for it, or there's a bond for it? I don't think I don't think we're quite there yet. But what I was really saying at Ullart and other places is that you know this is coming down the line. It's clear there's been. Big demographic changes in, in, in Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin are the largest party in Northern Ireland and the largest party in Belfast. Um, you know, the Alliance Party and the middle ground has shifted much more towards the, towards, you know, culturally much more towards the Irish side of things, if you like to put it like that. They're supporting the Irish language and that. So I think it behoves on the government to start looking seriously at this. Now, not using, not just letting, you know, um, civic society, which is a very important part, but the government should start looking at it. And in ra- and instead of having, you know, down the line, suddenly we might have a, a crisis where, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to run a border poll fairly soon. I mean, the one thing that we learned on Brexit is don't vote for something you don't know anything about. We, we need to know what a united Ireland is going to entail. Is it going to be, which I'd like, is a new state, a sort of a second republic, where the North and the South came together and we created 
you know, the best of the institutions on both sides. But I'd like to see that debate getting off the ground because, as I say... But there's so the many complications for, in that, Ray, isn't there? I mean, we've talked about this on the air before, apart from the financial aspect of it, uh, because obviously Northern Ireland is, is subvented by the British government currently at the moment. It's not self-sustainable. I don't believe it is. And, and as it is, you know, we find it difficult with 5 million people. So now we'll have whatever it is, 6.5 or 6.7 million people. Uh, Northern Ireland relies heavily on the civil service and those civil service jobs, which may not be needed if we have a United Ireland. Um, A lot of those people are going to have to find work for them. They have an NHS system, which is far superior to our HSE system, and it's free of charge. So who decides whether we suddenly all start paying or nobody pays anymore, which we couldn't afford down south. So there's a lot of complications, different legislation, different laws, different taxes. It would take a long time. I I think you could be looking at a, a crossover period of 10 years to slowly integrate everything together. I mean, similar to Brexit, where it's t- it's probably going to take Brexit 10 years before they actually see the result or the, or the disaster, whichever it happens to be, of, of Brexit. I, I, I think you're on the right lines. I don't know whether 10 years is the exact amount, but for instance, the, the fact that Northern Ireland is economically much less productive than the Republic and by the way, we spend massively more per head on health than they do in Northern Ireland, but get a poorer result. <laughs> and that's, a, that's, that's another story. But I think one of the reasons why Northern Ireland is unproductive is the type of, of, of policies that have been pursued in, on Northern Ireland economically, where, you know, they're very London-centric. I mean, they've never developed industries like forestry. Their fisheries are even, is, is even less developed than the Republic. And the fact that, you know, they, they can't... But they've relied on traditional in. investment. They've relied on things like Ireland and Wolf Shorts. Uh, they've relied on very traditional industry. I mean, you don't see a huge amount of investment in the tech industry in Northern Ireland, for example. It all seems to come to the south. Maybe that's because they get cheap corporation tax. But you, you don't see that type of investment in Northern Ireland, which I assume, if we had a United Ireland, you may see because it would be encouraged. Yeah, I see. I, I, you know, I, my family are divided between north and south, and I've, I've grandchildren in Belfast, and you know, I, I have cousins in Derry. And so I'm a very cross-border family, but I don't believe that Northern Ireland is inherently less productive than the south. I think if the right, the right set of policies, you can you you can get the north to be a contributor to the Irish economy. Now, I think you're right over a period of time. Till to, to, to you introduce the right policies, in other words, the right uh, corporate, corporate taxation policies and, 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 and other supporting stuff like, you know, uh, on the R&D. Until you do that, there's going to be a period where, you, you know, we, we have ourselves, the British, maybe the Americans, maybe the European Union will have to subvent Northern Ireland for a few years. But I don't believe it's a long term policy because I think, you know, there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of, you know, uh, expertise in Northern Ireland of, of people who've, who, with an industrial background, it doesn't get the, the investment simply because it cannot compete with the South. But if you put it on an even, on an even uh, keel, I think you would get a much better distribution of, inve- of foreign investment into this island. And I think that's one of the, one of the transition periods that we'll have to have for, as we move. I don't think you can go... I agree completely. You can't suddenly say tomorrow that, you know, the, the place is united. You have to work out the financial, how the, the, the health system's going to work, 
you know, the, what's the, the, the make up? Where are the institutions mm-hmm. going? Is the Supreme Court going to be in Armagh? Will the central bank go to Limerick? You know, it's a chance. Okay, like, so they're, the they're, most that's the financial aspect of it, right? And look, I think we yeah. could get over that. We could get through that. We could all agree eventually on who pays for doctors and who doesn't, etc., etc. There would be perhaps be a compromise somewhere along the line. But the biggest issue is going to be the controversial issues. And of course, you've got loyalists and nationalists who are never going to agree. We can see that with the executive. <laughs> they're never going to agree. So where, what flag do we use? What anthem do we use? Um, what becomes the national language? And what about people in Northern Ireland who consider themselves British that we must respect as well? And they're saying, well, we don't want this. And even if it's voted for, and it's a tough one whether it be voted for because the last, of course, polls that were done by the Belfast Telegraph kind of tell us that it's about 50-50 at the moment, maybe 51-49 one side. But realistically, it's split right down the middle. I mean, it couldn't be any more down the middle. So those British people, they don't want to be Irish. We can't just say, well, I'm sorry, it is Irish, move out if you don't like it. You know, you can't do that to people now after a generation. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think a lot of these unions people I know would describe themselves as Irish and British and uh, and in the Good Friday Agreement, one of the clauses that we put in is if Northern Ireland becomes part of the United Ireland, anyone in Northern Ireland has the right to retain their British citizenship in perpetuity. And that took a huge amount of negotiation. In fact, Tony Blair to overrule the Home Office to say that if, uh, you know, in future, no matter, and no matter what, who's in charge of Northern Ireland, Everybody there will have the right to have Irish and British citizenship. The other thing is that I have never met a unionist politician who said they would refuse to accept the result of a referendum. I've heard people in the South saying it, but any unionist I talk to says we're going to win the referendum if it comes, and that's a that's a, a very reasonable point. To yeah, but about. if they don't win it, but, will they accept it? They don't win it, but <laughs> but I I think I don't think the I I think the the large percentage of them will accept it. Uh, they won't like it. But it also depends on, I remember talking even to some loyalist paramilitaries and they said, well, you know, we look at what you're going to offer. Like, you know, if you come in here and you're going to ram the Irish language down our throat, if you're going to make us sing our own Naveen, then forget it, mate. But if you come to us and you talk to us and we have an input into it, as well as the nationalists in Northern Ireland, you don't just negotiate with the unions, you have to negotiate with the nationalists in Northern Ireland too, about the creation of a new state. And I think it can only be brought about with uh, cooperation and discussion. Like the Good Friday Agreement went into that. People, I remember relations of mine telling me I was wasting my time, wasting my life on these, on trying to um, uh, work on peace in Northern Ireland and that they'd never occur. But you, so know, you, you thought the 10th and, of April 1998, you were standing out there and I believe it was snowing that day, by the way. You thought that day would never come. Well, I, I, I hoped it came, but I had a degree of scepticism. The other thing about negotiations is you always have to have the right to walk away. Like you, you, if, if the deal wasn't right, you still have to walk away. So, you know, the deal wasn't right up until the last, the last hours when everybody compromised. So, I mean, everybody was prepared to, you know, we, we worked on the basis that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So people could make concessions and if the other side didn't make concessions, you know, you could essentially say we're pulling back on that. So everything came in the in the last few days. Mm. And I honestly believe that if we're ever going to bring these, this island together, and I think we will in the end, because 
I think, you know, uh, Northern Ireland has changed massively. And a lot of the stuff that led up to the Good Friday Agreement has changed Northern Ireland society. I went there in 1977 to Queen's for a period. And the difference between then and now is incredible. This oh, it's poles apart. Yeah, I know. It's poles apart. Because yeah, I, I remember, I remember going that's... there as a young man. And there was that, there was always that fear, you know, when you went to Northern Ireland, even if you did a bit of Christmas shopping or whatever it is, and you'd have a soldier wheeling a mirror under your car or whatever it was. Yeah. And, and now I'm there all the time, and it's just like any other city. It's a, you, nobody yeah. even thinks about it. You know what I mean? You, I mean, yeah. I can, I can only imagine what it was like for people living here when you had soldiers standing on every corner, you know, with AK-47s or whatever lights in their hand. It must have been very yeah, difficult. I never, I'll never forget the night. I was in Belfast, the night of the Shankill bombing. And if you could, if fear ever had a physical form, that was the night it was in. After the bomb had gone off on the Shankill Road, and people knew there were murder gangs preparing in uh, around the city mm. um, and, and and the wider side, I've never ever felt. Uh, and I was behind barbed wire and 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 a secure base, but and the people working me were having to leave the building and go out to their homes, and it was. It was incredibly bad that day. I, I, as I said, I mean, I never there's still the remnants of it there, right? I mean, you know, for people yeah. who visit, you still see the, obviously the murals on the walls. The PSNI stations yeah. still look like fortresses. Uh, a lot of them uh, haven't been modernised, and they still have those vehicles, which <laughs> always look like they're ready for a riot. I don't know what those vehicles yeah. are called. Uh, they still they still use them, mind you. Probably not such a bad thing to keep those in every city, by the way, just in case of riotous situations. But I suppose the other thing, big thing as well is Sinn Féin. Now, if I was a betting man, I'd have £100 down on Paddy Powers that the next general election will be Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and maybe a sprinkling of green. Um, and that's my prediction for the next general election. Fianna, Sinn Féin are certainly getting, for a party that weren't even allowed to speak on television not so long ago, uh, to now being uh, you know one step away from government. They probably would have got into government last time if they had to run enough candidates. Now, Mary Lou MacDonald and Sinn Féin have kind of turned their heels on a lot of what their original principles were. And from a woman who stands up on a podium saying Chucky Arlor at the end of a, a, a speech to turning around the, maybe the following day and saying, well, listen, nothing is off the table, including the flag and yeah. the anthem. That, to a lot of Republicans in the North or Sinn Féin fans, that might have been disappointing. Yeah, I think so. And I think at the moment Sinn Féin is operating on the basis that the present government is becoming unpopular and a bit like Keir Starmer in, in, in Britain, don't do or say anything that'll cause controversy and the, 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 the levers of power will fall into your hands. I, I don't think that's a particularly good strategy. I think you have to have a vision uh, and you have to go out there and win it. But, uh, you know, certainly they, you know, a lot of the older Republicans um, in Belfast, you know, people who would normally be in the Fallon's Club and the Roddy McCauley's Club, the kind of ex-combatants, I'm sure there's a, a degree of disillusionment uh, about it. But at the same time, one of the things of, you know, in, in negotiating with these people uh, was um, at the time in 1998, they were, they were tired of the war and they didn't want their children or their grandchildren to be involved in it. So there was a great deal of relief on it, mm-hmm. on it you know, to end it and to end it in an honourable way for them that they could walk away from it. I think by the time that had come, I think all sides wanted a way out and maybe the way out hasn't turned out the right way for, for, and, for, and it's for great almost for, anybody. It's, it's great for the young children now in Northern Ireland, the 10 and 11-year-olds. Most of them know yeah. absolutely nothing about the troubles. 
uh, and and hopefully they never will have to. Well, well, apart from learning it in history, and I hope it's part of the history lessons. I'm sure it is, but most of them will know nothing about it, and they will never have to yeah. see it again. But my fear with the border poll is, uh, you know, that if you have a situation where you know it's declared a win and it's United Ireland, or you know we move towards that, is that there are going to be some people, and it takes a minority to be unhappy about it, and we're back to square one again. And that that's always going yeah, to be a fear, isn't it? Yeah, but in, in you know the, we did promise the port of Poland. It was part of the settlement, and it's part of the Irish Constitution now. So, you know, if the situation and um, develops in such a way as that there would it appears that it might uh, it might carry, then the British courts have decided that you know it's not a, a completely um, uh, power on a whim. The, the decision must be made on the basis of of empirical um, not, uh, empirical information, and you know if if that occurred and you know there was a, a sort of a recoiling back or a nagging on that, then I think you'd have a fairly strong reaction in in in, in elements on the other side, you know, um, in, in in terms of you know we signed these things up, we signed the agreement, it was all based on this deal, and now you're reneging on the deal. You know, but people have, have reneged on better deals than that. I mean, I even spoke about it during Brexit when the, there was a suggestion at one stage during Brexit, of course, when Boris was in there, that there may have to be a hard border at Newry again. Yes. And somebody said, and I said, are you having a laugh? I said, the day a customs man stands out in the M woman his hand in the air, I said, I wouldn't like to be him and his family. I said, because that's not going to go down well, because that'll be just memories of the past. So, I, you know, there's always going to be the outliers who will never be happy with any arrangement. And they're the ones you need to worry about. It's not the majority you ever need to worry about. It's the minority. But you also, at the same time, cannot be, you know, beaten down by the threat of violence. You know, if we sign the deal and we think it's right, sometimes you have to go on with it. Uh, Now, you're exactly right. Everything you said there about the difficulties is, is true. But if you approach it, and that was one of the reasons why I made that speech when I was asked to speak at Ullard, was let's start preparing it. And let's start preparing it by governments. You know, the governments <coughs> will let NGOs prepare and, and they're nice academic stuff, but they don't really penetrate into the central government. I think we need to have a, 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 a government ta- a group to look at, you know, you know, the various issues and how, how they come up. Because as I say, with Brexit, we ended up with a complete mess because nobody had the, the uh, camera. Well, there was no had, foresight. Had, no. Yeah, but it, they were. Cameron actually banned the public service from planning for it because it, there was to be no plans for. Uh, but that's because he was hundred percent sure it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and if so it wasn't for Nigel Farage, it probably wouldn't have happened. But, but even if we don't come to United Ireland, I think we need to have the plan. I think we need to have the ideas. We need to have. We need to point out the difficulties. We need to to do our sums, and you know it. It, it will be dereliction of duty, given that it's a. Uh, the, the border poll is now part of the Irish Constitution on because the Good Friday Agreement is part of the Irish Constitution and the courts may force us to do things that we should essentially embrace it and and decide this is this is our outlook and put it out for public mm. consultation. And by the I way, just, just that, pardon my ignorance, by the way, if there is a border poll yeah. and a referendum on a united Ireland, because I was talking to somebody about this today and we actually couldn't decide who was right and who was wrong. Do the people of the Republic of Ireland get to vote? Because I don't think, Percy, that would be fair. 
Uh, the people of the public do get a vote because it, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about, uh, you know, the public taking over the North, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about is essentially going back to the drawing board uh, and, and, and drawing up new arrangements. Like one of the most exhilarating parts of the Good Friday negotiations was actually sitting down a piece of paper and writing up new, new, um, new institutions for Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, almost from scratch, we were talking, you know, let's put a human rights commission in and things like that. I think anything like that would give us a chance to look at some of the institutions in the Republic and decide maybe, you know, might be better at this. One of the problems we have in the Republic is it's very provincial in Dublin. You know, maybe we should move the central, as I say, the central bank to Limerick so they're not meeting socially the bankers. Well, Bertie Ahern tried to do that, didn't he, when he was in power, decentralisation, but it never never really worked. But it wasn't really decentralisation. What it was was moving civil servants around for votes in places like Longford and things like that. But, you know, but instead, let's say, you know, we, we, you know, the, for instance, a lot of international observers say a problem in Ireland, one of the reasons our banks never get into, get into trouble is it's very provincial. Everybody knows each other. You know, it's all scratch your back. It used to be the old boys club. At nod and, club nod and, and winkery, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let, let's, try, let's try, you know, for instance, uh, I remember one of the proposals during the economic crash was let's get people from the diaspora. Let's get, let, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to, to be in the central bank, to... To, to be on state boards. Oh, you're starting so, to sound you know, like Peter Casey now. <laughs> He's yeah, always going like on about the diaspora. Good. Yeah, but it sounds like a good idea until the politician said, oh no, hang on a second. Like, you know, there's a lot of people work for, you know, do voluntary work for me. Look, I've got to put them on boards. You know, mm. that's my way of thing. But that, that has a, you know, that has an advantage in it. It helps the political process that continue. But it has a disadvantage in that you don't get the type of, of people who would be with, you know, would have international experience and would have the calibre to, you know, um, mm. make decisions uh, for some of our major state um, institutions, you know. And finally, Ray, would you so, like, if there is a border poll in our lifetime, and I, I believe, I, I mean, I don't think you're too much older than I am. Um, I believe in our lifetime there will be, um, provided we live to the average age. Um, do you, would you like to be involved in it? Oh, I would, and I, 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 I speak uh, strongly. I, look, I, 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 I declare an interest. My, my grandchildren are Belfast, and they don't even know that there's partition. They just think they're Irish, and they <laughs> up and down. And why did he use this funny money in Dublin? You know. <laughs> so I, 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 I must admit, I have an emotional commitment, which people are almost ashamed to say nowadays. You know, you can get, you can get Rishi Sunak saying, "I emotionally am, am, am in favour of." of of uh, a united kingdom with all the places. And that's fine. But I think I have as, as much legitimacy to say I aspire to a united Ireland where we all can identify with and we, we can live in, you know. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm not, I'm not totally impartial yeah. to this issue, you know. Well, look, it, it's a wonderful, I suppose, vision of the future. Um, if we can get it all right and making sure we keep everybody happy because that's the most important part yeah. of this. And I think culturally, it'll be wonderful for the country. I think, you know, a major advantage of a united Ireland, is it would strengthen the country's economy. A unified Ireland, of course, would have a, a larger population, a greater pool of resources, which would attract more investment and create more jobs, most likely. And it would also make it easier for Irish businesses to expand into Northern Ireland and the UK market. So I, I think it would be good for all if we could get it right. It's the getting it right part exactly. is going to be the hardest thing. Yeah. Just like you did with the Good Friday Agreement, you can pull it out of the hat, Ray. 
Well, one of the things I found when I went, I remember when I was I was calling with a politician and say, you're going up to talk to loyalists in Belfast. I said, me? I said, my mother used to have me singing Robert Demet at the, at the thing. <laughs> so I went, and I didn't realise I'd like these people so much. And I think they would they would add a huge layer and a huge great uh, ability to, 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 to the Irish state. I mean, they are naturally, you know, questioning things in a way they're much less likely to get into groupthink and things like that. I think these people, and they've been kind of trapped in this situation where you know there's there's uncertainty in, 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 over their, their their long term future. I would love to see them come and make a big contribution, and I'd love to have a state on this island where they'd feel totally comfortable in, and they weren't feeling that they were sort of coerced or or, mm. or, or, or being set upon. No, you'd like to see them move beyond the kind of troubled past and focus on a, building a brighter future, I suppose. Is really what exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, listen, Ray, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. And you'll go down in history, of course, like many others. By the way, did you watch the, the Bertie or did you listen to the Bertie Heron podcast? I didn't, actually. I didn't. Uh, oh, I didn't shame on it. you. Uh, <laughs> he'll be very, he'll be very disappointed. This is the one about the Good Friday well, Agreement. I'm personally fond of Bertie. I think... You know, they, there's pluses and minuses, but I think history will be very kind to Bertie. Mm. And I, you know, without Bertie and Blair, and I'm a, you know, in Ireland, I could nearly get myself lynched, but I saw Tony Blair up close and I saw Tony Blair do something that no British Prime Minister ever did before is, you know, treat the, 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 the problem as totally impartially and also give it the type of attention that no British Prime Minister ever did before. And really, just be prepared to to look at all solutions. And I think without Bertie and Blair, I don't think we would have had it. And did Bill, did Bill Clinton right. play such a big role? And I know the president yeah. of America recently came over to say he wanted to make sure he kept the Brits. Well, he, the, 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 Americans, the, Amer- the Americans never took a position on an individual item at the whether are we going to have a human rights commission? Are we going to have a department thing? But the one thing that that Clinton did was Clinton was available all the time and. You know, people like Trimble and Adams are hugely impressed by the American president ringing them. And he literally stayed up all that night and said, I'm available. So, you know, either Bertie or um, Blair could send a message over. We're having trouble with with this, with um, with Terry Adams. We want him to accept this. You know, will you give him a ring? And, and, <laughs> he'd give him a ring. He rang, I don't know, many times that night. And he was ringing people, you know, with even smaller parties to get them on board. And I think it helped a great deal. And, Mm. you know, I I, I certainly wouldn't write down here. And, of course, he appointed George Mitchell. So he did did make a big contribution. And it it does look like Bertie, well, he's back in the Fianna Fáil party again. So I think that's kind of hint that he might be running for presidency next time around when Michael D (laughs) steps aside. Um, But the only problem for Bertie is... For a lot of people, he won't be remembered for the Good Friday Agreement. He'll be remembered for having no bank account as a finance minister. I thought, I thought you were going to say the, the only socialist in the all. <laughs> but sure, he had no bank account. Even though he was the minister for finance, he had no bank account. So he'll only ever be remembered for that. Or what, what was it they said in the tribunal? He was he was guilty of telling untruths. Is that, is that the same as lying? I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. Par- parliamentary language. But I yeah. saw good parts of him. I saw, you know... The unionist, I remember a, a, a loyalist guy said saying to me, very difficult to dislike Bertie Hearn. It was okay when you had that Charlie High down there and he was in a dungeon planning our, planning our demise. 
But then meet Bertie and starts talking about Manchester United. I know. He really doesn't. But you know, he he's a nice it. bloke. I, I, I was doing yeah. a, a temporary radio station going back about 15 years ago. It was just a project I was doing on my own with some other DJs. We did this temporary radio station. We got a license yeah. to the Broadcasting Authority. And we had this fun breakfast show with like a comedian, Jason Byrne, and a couple of people. And I asked yeah. Bertie, would he come in and co-host the show with us? And at the time, he had just finished uh, being Taoiseach. He had just stepped down. And he said, yeah, okay. And he came, he came in and I still have the recordings of it. He co-hosted the breakfast show and as he was talking about football and all sorts of things. He was writing for the Daily Mail, I think, at the time. Or was it The Sun? Who was he writing yes. for at the time? He did an article or a piece. And he came in and did it. And he was so good to me afterwards because I was looking to try and get a full license from the Broadcasting Authority and he wrote to them on my yes. behalf. And, he, and he, I remember one day I see this call coming up my phone from a, an unknown number and I answered it. And it was Bertie. And he went, all right, no, how are you doing? I said, how's things? For no reason, he just rang me. And I sat there in the office I was working in for about an hour, just chatting to him on the phone. He was yeah. just bored. I, think. I, just, I don't know. I just, He's I a nice guy. Be kind to yeah, yeah, I think so. In, in that area anyway, you know? Yeah, yeah, old spanner. Isn't that what he'd say? <laughs> yes, yeah, spanner. Right, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been okay, interesting. Yeah. And thank you very much indeed. You're a wonderful man. Thank you very all much indeed, Ray. All the best. Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio, the multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show.